Thank you very much for that. It was, it's, uh, it's very good to bring the Word of God today. I'm very, very excited and thrilled to do this, especially a psalm like this, Psalm 118. Um, please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 118. As you're, as you're doing that, I want to talk a little bit. This, this is a, a powerful psalm with an amazingly rich history, for it is frequently used even now in Jewish life. But we also see this particular psalm showing up time and again later in our scriptures. The very first verse, as we've already read, leads us and starts us on an amazing journey following the steps of the author as he explores what God's steadfast love means to him. In this psalm, we will see and hear the testimony of the followers of God who would sing this and how all people could then respond, relate to, and at some point engage with this psalm in their journey. We see pain, we see fear, but we also see how God stepped in and how he rescues all who seek him. We will clearly see how we can then confidently trust and rest in this one who can do all this and so much more. We can give thanks to God, for we will see in all of its splendor that he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This right here, that phrase, you're going to hear a a lot on purpose. It is the main point, it is the theme, it's the entire point of this psalm and our focus for today. We're going to be using this psalm to consider our God, to know him more, but more importantly, know and be changed by what we see here. With this, all this in mind, let's once again, I'm going to read Psalm 118 again. I would encourage you especially to zero in on when the psalmist talks about steadfast love, when you hear those particular words. So I'm going to read this once more. Psalm 118 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard, so I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. I forgot my Bible. I'm going to get that real quick. (laughs) It's right there. Thank you. All right. As a a father, there are many times where I've given my daughters a a directive, knowing full well they will not, they, they cannot fully understand the reasoning or the background behind why I am asking them to do whatever I'm asking them to do. I can, I can tell them not to open an email from a Nigerian prince, but until they have to, or more accurately, I have to, get a virus off their computer, they won't necessarily understand why a Nigerian prince would want to, would want to reach out to them. This, uh, this happened with my dad as well. Uh, I, I, learned the, I learned that it was really unwise to leave the parking brake on as we were towing my car across the country. That was, uh, that was an incredibly unpleasant lesson to learn, I'll be honest. Now, let me take this opportunity real quick on Father's Day to give a, a quick exhortation to those kiddos. Kids, trust that your parents might know a few things. Trust that their life experience is worthwhile. Listen to them. It's a great opportunity to do that. My point, though, in bringing that up is to uh, is is that is that when we are initially given a command, we do not initially fully understand and connect with it. But life experience will and can, in many cases, help us with this. I think that's actually what we see here in Psalm. 118. The psalmist starts right off the bat with a command, give thanks. Then he uses the rest of the psalm to flesh out the reasoning, giving us the necessary background and wisdom. And then we repeats the same command at the very end. You guys see it comes back to the very end. This way, when we get to it in our and or in life, when we hear the directive again or even worse, as a parent, give the same directive to our kids, we go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Maybe that is a good idea. Maybe I should be doing this. We're going to be seeing that today. We're going to be seeing our God very clearly giving a directive, building on it, and then coming back to it again to help us fully understand. Now, before we fully jump into these truths and explain these things, I think it's going to be really important to understand some background about the psalm, first of all. There's, there's a lot to consider here, and so um, knowing these things kind of gives us some help to better frame things real quick. So regarding the author, we're not, we're not really sure about one Psalm 118. Uh, it could be many people. It, my opinion probably wasn't David for a number of reasons, although there are those who would disagree with me. Uh, there are some some factors in the psalm that kind of lead us to think that it was probably more in after the exile, actually, just, and we'll talk about those here in just a little bit, uh, but therefore probably not David, although there are some smart people who fully disagree with me. Um, 
the, the psalm was also, we're not, church, we're not entirely sure why it was written either. The psalm was probably composed for the celebration of some great building or structure, possibly the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra's time after the exile, possibly also the gates in Nehemiah's time as well because of verse 19 and verse 20 actually refer to gates. So we see multiple uh, instances or multiple points that lead us to that. Uh, the building metaphors uh, also combined with the idea of the discipline, the severe punishment felt by the author and the people of the time lead us to think this was probably written at some point in time after the exiles. If David were to write this, that would more make this probably more prophecy than anything else. But while we're not entirely sure why it was written, we are very clear about its, its, uh, its uses, how it was then later used. This, this is actually a pretty, pretty important psalm as I was doing my research. It's what's called part of the Egyptian halal. Halal is the Hebrew word for praise. Uh, this is a group of psalms, so Psalm 113 to Psalm 18 is the Egyptian halal. And uh, this group of psalms was incredibly important to the Jews, uh, particularly because they were strongly, because uh, they were used to celebrate a number of feasts. They were called the Egyptian halal because they were actually strongly connected with the Passover. And so the Jew, Jews would and do sing this in preparation lead up to the Passover. So they would use these songs, this song in particular, as a tool to remember the great aspects, the great acts of our God, but also prepare their hearts for their feast or a special occasion. Psalm 118 is considered the last, what well, is the last halal psalm, but it's called the great halal psalm, if, if that means anything to you. Um, now, beyond the, uh, just the general Jew- Jewish uses now, the, this psalm was used many times during the gospel period. This psalm features quite prominently, particularly verses 25 and 26, for they are, those, those verses are the lyrics for the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the description of which is found many places, but particularly Matthew 21.9. Save us, we pray, the, uh, when transliterated from Hebrew to Greek becomes Hosanna. Okay, so you see Hosanna in the highest. So you see the, the, the Jews were singing this to Christ as he was coming in uh, into Jerusalem on the last week of his life. The psalm, this psalm was also most likely sung at the Last Supper. Matthew 26, 30 refers to Christ and the disciples singing hymns in preparation for the Passover. And as I mentioned, this is one of those ones that they would use in preparation for the Jews at that time. Christ also, interestingly enough, alludes to this psalm and alludes to his followers singing this hymn at his return, his second coming. Um, he mentions in Matthew 32, sorry, 23, 39, he mentions that we would not see him or he wouldn't be back in Jerusalem until all are ready to sing this psalm, particularly verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what an amazing thought. We may be learning this song in preparation for Christ's return. Now, much later and much less importantly, the great reformer, we've already, Matt's already quoted him in our E412 time, uh, great reformer Martin Luther called this very psalm his favorite of them all. In a, in, a, in a letter which he describes his love for all the scripture, he goes on to say, but this psalm is nearest to my heart. I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger from which nor emperor, nor kings, nor sages, nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend dearer to me than all the honors and powers of the earth. 
think that we're in very good company to focus in and, and delight in this particular psalm and, and dive into this rich reminder of the steadfast love of God. One final note before we dive into what it's actually talking about here the, on, in Psalm 118. The author uses uh, one important literary feature, repetition. Okay, you see that, you, you, heard, you heard that as we've heard it twice now, you've heard that a lot. Repetition this way is a way of really emphasizing the most important points that the author is trying to bring up, right? There's no better way of bringing the spotlight squarely on what um, our author is trying to convey. Now, scholars have actually broken this down further into two main strategies of repetition or two main uses of the repetition. The first is inclusio, and I, you see on the board, on, on the board, on the on the screen, uh, which is the repetition of the first li- of, the, of the same line at the beginning and the ending. The goal of which is he states the main point, uses the body of the psalm to explain that main point, and then come back to it to really highlight that main point. We'll see that here. Uh, the second is called anaphora, which is the repetition of beginning lines, and we see that multiple times throughout the psalm. You see that a couple of times that the psalmist uses that. Now, I, I point these things out not as just another cool words to know or whatever, or a literary exercise, because we don't need more of those, but because both strategies point back to, point us back to what the psalmist is getting to. They point us back to the main idea of what he's trying to convey, that the Lord is good for his steadfast love endures forever. So we're going to see this very clearly. So we'll start right off. Um, so on verse 1, we see the theme. No, there we go. In verse 1, we see the theme statement. I won't read it again. You, you've, you'll hear it a bunch, actually. <laughs> um, so while this particular psalm may, be, may, be, may feel somewhat long and meandering, there is but one aim to communicate what I just said that our God is good, and this is demonstrated through his steadfast love. Everything we'll be seeing and hearing points back to this great truth, and this is the singular thing with which we are to walk away. What makes it better is the psalmist makes it really easy for us to remember. The entire psalm boils down to this main repeated statement. We can't miss it. It's right there. The psalmist uses this and the rest of the song to explain why this is true. He gives us example after example and uses it, uses these facts to draw us in to that exact same conclusion. Now, I want to, well, point out, so Matt, I actually stole one of Matt's slides from earlier, uh, because I know Matt spent some time talking about the word steadfast love. I think Psalm 107, he, he spent some time, and I Literally stole this slide from him, so I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Um, so I want to, before I, I, so we've talked about it before, but, it, but before we go too much farther, I want to kind of dive in because I think it would be helpful just to make sure that we are as clear as possible in our, with our terms, uh, uh, terms especially. So as many have mentioned before, the word, the Hebrew word here, steadfast love, is chesed. I probably butchered that pronunciation, but we're going to move forward. Uh, oh, got a thumbs up. There we go. Uh, the word is often translated mercy. Think in the King James. Okay, you hear the word mercy. Uh, but it's also been translated love, kindness, devotion, and even favor. And while there's no direct word that will easily convey everything that the end of word was entirely meant to understand, it has all those particular ideas, the mercy, kindness, love, favor, devotion, has all those particular ideas and more wrapped up inside it. It really, as you see right here, it is a covenantal 
love, not a transactional love, right? It is a love that it's not what can I, what can you do for me, okay? That's transactional love, but a covenantal love, meaning it's a decision, it happened, it's a covenant, it's a promise. It's about a decision to set your affections on something and then act with those choices in mind. Now, amazingly, when it comes to God, we're describing the incredible idea that this love is eternal and all-powerful. This choice was made. It's never going away. It's ours, and there is nothing, as we'll see later in the chapter, there is no, no way that, it will, that, that will take it away or get in the way of this love. It's may, it may not always feel close by, but it is. And the psalmist will go through the entire song to prove this particular point. Now, that's, a, that's an impressive start to a psalm, right? With this kind of star, uh, start, we're kind of expecting great things, not out of the sermon, but out of the psalm, just to be clear. The psalmist doesn't disappoint. After all this very clear theme statement, he then moves on to a corporate invitation for all to confirm his response. And so you see in verses 2 through 4, a corporate invitation. We see the author calling out specific groups as to join him as he sings. This joy, this glorious truth is not being done justice just by being sung by a handful of people. Everyone needs this. The entire world needs to hear this great and governing truth. His steadfast love endures forever. And so he invites us all in to sing and join with him. Now, we can go into why the psalmist divided the hearers in following ways, but I, I fear if we do that, we miss the larger perspective. Maybe he was leading in a call and response or a round or something like that. And those are all very interesting, but I think we're going to leave it at this right here is the appropriate response for God's followers. And all should respond like this. His steadfast love endures forever. So after this call and response now, and with everyone's eyes on him, the author, singer, then begins to recount why. Why should we thank God? Why should this theme guide everything in our life? Well, we're about to hear. Now, there are, there are many ways to break up the next big section, verses 5 to 27. There's a, a number of ways, and the way I broke it up, I'm not going to claim that it's the best way or even a better way. I hope it's a, hope it's a good way. <laughs> I'll say it like that. I feel like it's a good way. Definitely not a bad way. I'll say it like that. Uh, but I see three examples that then point us back to this main theme, theme being, he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I think there are two instances of trouble that God steps into and rescues the author. And then we see at the end, the last instance or example is that God keeps his promise, which also points us back to, once again, he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So in the, the first example, so in verses 5 through 13, we see, I think pretty clearly, that the Lord is my helper. Our, our author has found himself or is communicating that he is in a terrifying place in life. And he learns and expresses his only hope, taking refuge in the Lord. He is entirely surrounded by those who want him dead. He even uses some pretty scary language to communicate these particular thoughts, to describe them. They are pictured, so you see nations there, but you see also bees and a quick burning fire. 
Now, I, I personally am pretty allergic to bees, and so I find a single one pretty intimidating. But to have an entire swarm, the picture here is an entire swarm coming at you, ready to defend, attack, or just mess me up generally. Um, that, that's a bad thing. That's a scary thing. So that's the image that, that the author is using here. The other image, the fire image, is also really scary, especially around here where we are prone to wildfires and things like that. The, the image that the author is painting is a force moving straight at you. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And it, it does have the power to entirely destroy you. It can wipe you out. But the Lord stepped in. The Lord helped. And the author was actually able, as we see here, was actually able to turn the tables on these armies. Because the author learned to call on the Lord, to find his hope and refuge in God alone, he doesn't have to fear. He says, what can man do to me? When there is the only one of whom we can say his steadfast love endures forever, when that one is on our side, we have abs- we are ad- it is absolutely foolish to look anywhere else for help, even to fear. What a wondrous and glorious thought and hope that we have. And I think one additional part of this, one, one important part that I want to overlook is, is I think we see a pretty clear contrast here. The author's bringing in a pretty clear contrast between the idea of God as our helper and the help of man and the help of God. We see that especially in verses 6 through 9. You, say, uh, you see that right there. The Lord is on my side. And then it goes better, it goes into, it's better to take refuge in the Lord. Um, we, uh, we should not fear man on either side of the definition of fear, right? There's a couple of def- the way you can define fear multiple ways. We shouldn't fear, we shouldn't fear or worry about what man can do to us, but we also shouldn't fear or respect the, the idea of respect, the help that they could possibly bring because man is finite, because we have massive limitations in what we can do. Humans are not worthy of the thought that we would give them either to harm or to help. Even those who would seemingly have the most influence and power in this world, the princes, you see in verse 9, the princes mentioned here, they can't do it. They can't get things together enough to actually provide the protection that we would see. The same goes for us nowadays. Political parties, presidents, general leaders, they are never going to be able to perfectly and completely protect those who follow them. Only our God. Only the one of whom it can be said, He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Amen? So in that image alone, right there, right there, those first couple of verses, we could call it a psalm and go home, right? The, the, that right there is all the encouragement we need to thank our God for His goodness and steadfast love. But the psalmist keeps on going. In verses 14 through 17, we see that the Lord is our doubt, is our salvation. God, we see then that he isn't simply a helper, but our everything. He is our very salvation. In the previous verses, we see that God stepped in when, we, when they were surrounded, when the author was surrounded and pushed beyond all hope. And then that is when God himself acts. He does valiant things. And so because he does these great things, there are glad songs for us to sing. In fact, I, and I love this particular image, 
God himself is our song. The commentator Albert Barnes said of this particular verse, he is the source of strength to me. And he is the subject of my praise. There is no ground of praise in myself for anything that I have done, but all is due to him. What a great encouragement and help. The acts of our God must lead us to praise, and in this case, song. Now, the psalmist also introduces here, oh, back one. Uh, The psalmist also introduces the aspect of God's discipline. I think this is why I see verses 5 through 13 and 14 through 18 just a little bit differently in this case, because we see that added here. Do you see that in verse 18? That this is a, 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 in verse 18 it says, The Lord has disciplined me severely. This is interesting, because this initially might seem pretty out of place. Okay? I thought this was all about the steadfast love of God and not, and we so often perceive discipline, as God throwing wrenches at us. How does this fit in to the overall theme? Now, I think, based on everything we see here, that we should consider the chastisement, think King James English, uh, the chastisement of the Lord, of God, as one of the ways in which he shows, he demonstrates this steadfast love. He is being kind when he brings things into our lives that help us to hate sin, run to him, and follow him entirely. That is the end that he is calling us to. And it is what we need most of all. Now, from experience, that's hard to say. That, that stinks, right? We don't, we don't want this to be true in the least, but it is. And the psalmist is leading us to the idea that even in the midst of trials, even when things look bleak, and the discipline of the Lord is weighing heavy on our hearts, we can still say, He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The, the discipline of the Lord is truly significant and hard. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But the larger issue is sin is that bad. Any frustration we feel being disciplined by God has to be redirected, for it shows how little we think of our own sin. The 17th century English clergyman Thomas Horton describes this problem well when he says this in very cool old English. Strong humors or uh, sickness requires strong physic medicine to purge them out. When corruption is deeply rooted in the heart, a light or small matter will not serve to turn it out. No, but a great deal of stir and ado must be made with it. Now, I don't think he has an entire great understanding of the human body and medical practici- current medical practitioner. However, the general idea stands and is very helpful. When we get a better picture of the horror of our sin, then uh, the discipline of God is a kindness to all those who call on him. Well, surely now we're clear, right? Surely now we can, we can wrap things up. But graciously, there is so much more. In verses 19 through 27, we see next that the Lord keeps his promises. And what I see is the final example or reason for thanking our gracious God. We see that the Lord keeps his promises. Now, based on my, my research, my work, in verse 19, is, it's, it's an interesting verse and can be translated or interpreted a number of different ways. 
For those, of you, for those who may see this particular psalm, the whole psalm, as, a, as, a, as the king's journey through different hardships, then this would be, this last section, would be the, the king arriving at the temple and praising God. Others see the second half of this as the priest's response to the singer. I think that could also be helpful as they, as they approach the temple. And while I think that both viewpoints can add, add some sense to it, can, can help us in our understanding, we, we do know that the psalmist is once again using even this right here to point us back to our main theme, right? The psalmist is thanking God that he has the opportunity to once again go into the temple and praise our God. Now keep in mind, the Jews, uh, uh, the Jews who were originally singing this or thinking through this would have considered the simple fact of gates and a temple as a sign of the steadfast love of God. For whenever you think this may have originally been written, number one, having a place to worship God, a temple, and then having gates around said temple, prove, point to God perfectly keeping his word. They point to how God has acted on behalf of his followers and sustained them through the discipline that was previously mentioned. His steadfast love does endure forever. And we see that here in just the simple, the, the fact that they have this opportunity to do this. Now the next section, starting in, uh, in, next, uh, starting in 22, um, is probably, for those of you who've been, been a believer for a, long, uh, for, for a longer period of time, uh, probably sounds familiar. The psalmist speaks of a cornerstone. We've already actually sung and read about that on purpose, too. I want to point that out. Um, now, for those of you who do not have an architectural background, a cornerstone is going to be one of the first, if not the first, stone that was set in a stone building. This is going to be somewhat obviously in the corner of the building, and it sets the lines for the rest of the building. So you see in, the, in that picture, that's the big one right in the middle. That would be the, what we call a cornerstone. Now, I've, I've actually done a, a decent bit of masonry in my, my life, and I know that the, the hardest part of building uh, with bricks isn't building up. That's frankly really, really easy and kind of fun. The hard part is getting those first stones that first stone that foundation set and set well because everything else goes uh, connects to that so much to use a bad it's father's day this is a dad this is a dad joke it, everything rests on that cornerstone okay that's that's my dad joke for today um there there is uh yeah, there's, there's a lot with that so that's incredibly important now, this also could be referring to the idea of the, the keystone in an arch, which would be the, the middle block. So if there's an arch right there, it's the middle block in an arch. Keeps the, keeps the arch working. Um, but the foundation, actually, the foundation stone, what you see here, is probably uh, is the better idea, and it fits the context a little better. So why are we talking architecture? Why are we talking masonry right now? Well, in its original understanding, the way this, when, this is, when this is originally written, the, 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 it is probably referring to the general idea of the subjugation, humiliation, and even general rejection of the Israelites in world power. But now God has proven that they will be the pivotal people group in all of history. They were conquered. They were legitimately had no hope of positive outcomes. But God stepped in and set them as the cornerstone. 
He proved his steadfast love by restoring and sustaining them even through the darkest times and then making them, what we probably see here, the pivotal people group in all of history. This seems to be the connection here, God making them the cornerstone. Now, one other view could be, as we we read earlier in Isaiah 28, is that the builders here could actually be the leaders of Israel who were leading the people astray through focusing on other gods. And the the true cornerstone, the one spoken of here, would probably be the singer or the king who was then righting those wrongs. And God was was setting uh, setting the right people into place. Uh, As I mentioned, Isaiah 28, 14 through 16 speaks of this. The prophet there speaks of how God himself would provide the right cornerstone because all the peoples, all the leaders were pointing in the wrong direction. And so God himself would make that right. Uh, Now, I bring this up simply because I want to emphasize that this is a very important picture in our scriptures, in Christ uses, and we're going to talk here just how Christ uses as well. So it's an incredibly important picture because it helps us understand more about our God and more about what he is calling us to do. Now, beyond the Old Testament, it's quoted at least in five different situations in the New Testament. It's quoted more times in scripture because one time is quoted, it's the same instance happens three to, uh, is quoted three times. Christ himself quotes this section right here, so uh, verse 22. Uh, Christ himself quotes this uh, in his ministry, specifically in the parable of the evil tenants. Uh, so it's found in a number of places, but one of them being Matthew 21, 42. For a memory refresher, this is the parable where a landowner was leasing some of, leasing his land to some tenants. And so when it came time to collect the fruit from the land, the tenants actually killed multiple collectors and then ultimately killed his lander, landowner's own son. The, the lesson of the story is that the landowner would then come down and wipe out the tenants and put new people in place that would actually follow along. Now, while the, uh, the religious leaders of the time were, were pretty oblivious often to Christ's parables and closed-minded, they actually picked this one up very clearly. And they understood the true meaning of this parable, and it only furthered their fury to end Christ's ministry. Christ, Christ then, after giving this parable, pulled in verse 22 to really drive the message home about how the leaders were rejecting God how he, in fact, was from God. And the rejection of him was rejection of God and that God himself would be setting the cornerstone, his own son, and was actually in the process of doing this. Uh, Peter uses this same illustration as well in one of his sermons and uses the same passage to actually drive the exact same point home. He, uh, as one would expect, Peter uses a little more direct language in Acts 4.11. Uh, he then, Peter then continues to use the imagery in 1 Peter 2, uh, and then uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses it in Ephesians 2, both of, both of which are speaking of Christ as our cornerstone. I think that we can safely say this is an important image that our God has put us here, put here to help us better understand that, once again, our Christ is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The use of these points and how it points us back to, both of those things points us back to how God kept his promises. He promised the cornerstone, 
and he provided it. He perfectly provided the correct cornerstone because even in our best efforts, we couldn't cut it. We were and are all over the place. And so the fact that God stepped in and gave us what we need should help bring comfort and help to our souls, but also lead us then to praise. That's what the psalmist does next, right? He goes right into it. That, that this is marvelous. We can and should rejoice in the day that he has created. The, the text of the, of the song from earlier. So it's incredibly important that Christ is our cornerstone. We see that alluded to here. Um, then in verse 25 and 26, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about these two real quick again. I've already spoken how they play a pivotal role, particularly in both Christ's last week and his return. But I do want to take a moment to point out that both of these things, that how they are used later, the triumphal entry and Christ's return, point us back to that God keeps his promises, right? He promised these things, and he did them. He followed through. He perfectly followed the prophecy that we see here because he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 20, uh, 25, I think, are also very good words for us to recount and pray, to know, to have in our own hearts. They, it's a powerful prayer for anyone, who, for all believers. And, and when we act in light of these truths here, it does bring great hope. So the, the, just that, that quick prayer is incredibly helpful. Now, I, I can't skip over one more really powerful connection found here in the passage. We see the psalmist invoking, in verse 27, what is called the Aaronic benediction, which I'll, I'll, talk, I'll explain here in just a minute. He says in verse 27, The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. To any Jewish ears, that would have immediately reminded them of Numbers 6, 24-26, which says, The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So that right there is called the Aaronic benediction. It is, it is how, it's how God expected, God stated, bless the people like this, told Aaron to bless people like this. And so the, the, the priest continued to use it. The, the psalmist isn't quoting that though, right? The psalmist is taking that benediction and, and turning it in some ways, right? He is, he's turning it into a, into a confirmation and not simply a request. The psalmist is saying here, yes, God did this. God has made his light to shine upon us. God kept his promises and is once again demonstrating that he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. What a great reminder what a great help, for the, because these will be true even for us. Even when we are scared of what man can do to us. Even when we are surrounded by enemies. Even when we are dealing with the discipline of the Lord. We can be confident that God has caused his light to shine upon us. He has kept his promises, and he will to the end. It's already done, and we are simply waiting for that final fulfillment. God keeps his promises. Finally then, in verses 28 and 29, we see the psalmist once again restating the main point. But this time, 
And we hear it, just like in life, as I've already alluded to. We have so much more to hang on it, right? We have so much more to put on. We have so many more sticks that we can add to that particular fire. We have reasons upon reasons to confirm this truth and join with the psalmist and all the followers of God to, as they proclaim the goodness of our God. So, after all this, we walk through this. Where does this leave us? What should we do? Well, I'm, I'm hoping that if I've done my job correctly, the answer is fairly clear and obvious. Just like the psalmist, we must be on the lookout for this same theme in our lives, that we can give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. This stands just as powerfully as it did when it was first written now. There is a reason that everything in this entire psalm points back to this singular truth, and so we must acknowledge it. The psalmist is calling us, every single one of us, you see that in verse 4, seeing that God is calling us to confirm and communicate this truth to all who will listen. So, what does this look like then? A couple, a couple of practical things. We see, first of all, that the psalmist uses his past experiences to aid him in this goal. He uses the scary and terrifying times that he has faced but more specifically, how God has sustained him through those times to draw his heart and mind to this glorious truth that was in front of him the whole time. Even when it was hidden behind clouds of sorrow, hurt, and pain, he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We can and should respond and do the exact same way. We must store these things away for those miraculous times when God steps in at just the right moment or just the right way, or even the the simple, ordinary, daily provisions of our life. And then recall that when we are tempted, and recall these when we are tempted to trust in man, to fear, or just give up. Our God is better than man. There is nothing that man can do or provide that is greater than what he can do. It's foolish to hope or trust in anything else. There is nothing. uh, Find your refuge in God. Use this great cornerstone to orient your entire life. Look to God's salvation for anything else. All the other types of salvation will not be worth it, cannot be worth it, and won't help. I think we also see an encouragement that while we are in distress, to call out to God. In verses 5 and 27 specifically, we see the psalmist calling out and God answering. And then in verse 25, the psalmist gives us another call out to God as well. It gives us a a quote for us to use. The fact of God's faithful love, the fact that he does hear and answer us in our needs must override our feelings and our perceptions. It's so easy to allow our current experience to dictate what we think about God is actually true. I know that I, I do it, okay? However, when we're re- what we are reading here is the greater, the greatest truth that we will find in this universe. And what we are reading right now, the, these facts must dictate how we feel and not the other way around. Our perception of the world has to be grounded in these particular truths right here. He is good. For a steadfast love endures forever. Finally, 
One last application. We must act in faith, resting entirely in God and say this out loud. God still acts for those who seek him. God is still entirely sovereign over all things and so we can confidently assert, like the psalmist did, I will give thanks to you. The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what hope and peace is expressed here. What utter confidence in the great and good hand of our God that nothing can and will get in his way. Even when we are in the bleakest of times. And for the original Jews, the Jews originally singing and reading the Psalms, they were bleak. We have so much more confidence and hope than based on anything other than based on any human whim. We are assured a hope and a future. And so we can respond like this. We can boldly move and act in a way that blows the minds of everyone who is trusting in man for their refuge or security or salvation. We have before us a rich and wonderful psalm for everything in it and everything connected to it, right? We talked about that. Points back to one main truth. We see this truth truth fused into every section of the psalm. And then when the apostles Peter and Paul, and most importantly Christ, use it later, once again, everything aligns to show us in bright lights and then spur us on to action this truth. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. Kind and gracious God, Thank you. Thank you for being good. Thank you for setting your undeserved favor on us, for choosing us of all beings to be called out and rescued from the fate that we deserved. Thank you for sealing us forever. Help us then now to live out your call on our lives, to be entirely committed to what you have called us to do. Help us to remember how you have and are acting in our lives and all of history. Help us to call out to you and help us to fully rest and trust and find our all and our refuge in you alone. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Before we close with a song reminding us again of these great truths, let's spend some quiet moments working out what needs to change in our own hearts, and how we can then communicate these great truths to all around us.
Amen. Let's stand.